Today on the Ward Preacher Podcast, Pure Religion, Faith Without Works is Dead, and the Verse That Changed the World. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Ward Preacher Podcast. All right, this week our Come Follow Me curriculum brings us to the book of James. There is a lot of good material, and we are only going to cover just a few passages. Um, Ensure that you are studying the rest of this independently. There are some gems in here, and we're only going to talk about a few, beginning with a passage in James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In this council, we find the two great commandments as taught by Jesus Christ himself. First, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Another way that you could phrase that is, love thy neighbor as thyself. You're visiting people who are in trouble, and you're you're caring about them, as you would if you were in trouble. Hope to be cared for yourself. Now, um, we can spend a little bit of time wondering, why is this a big deal? Why is this commandment repeated in so many places? And there's a common sense answer that everyone wants to be helped. and and that this is generally good. I certainly haven't heard any arguments saying, you know what, we really shouldn't help anyone ever with anything. No one actually argues that. Um, Now, they might make arguments about who should help and how the help should come, but those are political, and we're not going to get into that here on this podcast. Um, uh, the, The religious question, Why does God ask us to do this? And while it may seem a little bit obvious, oh, God loves everyone, which is accurate, I think it's worth thinking about a little bit deeper. In the Bible, we see the power of God used to send, to rain manna from heaven upon the people of of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. Uh, We also saw Jesus himself use just a few loaves and fishes to feed thousands of people. What this suggests is that God is actually capable of feeding everyone. God could take care of, of hunger himself. We also, in the Bible, see the miraculous healing of people from Naaman the Syrian captain, Uh, in the Old Testament, to Lazarus in the New Testament. God is actually capable of healing everyone. There's no disease that's beyond his power. There's no affliction, even death, he has power over. He could help everyone. So, if it's not God's inability that leaves people hungry and sick and afflicted, um then the question might be, is it that God does not love us or care for us 
to relieve us from the troubles that we face in life? And of course, that's not true. As we mentioned before, God does love us. God deliberately forged the world on which we live in a process that took days, as recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, whatever that means, it's certainly much longer than the process that it took for healing Naaman or uh, uh, um, Lazarus or any of the other people that God has healed in the scriptures. Um, God sent prophet after prophet, in fact, throughout time from the beginning to plead with his children to repent. I mean, even Isaiah, you look at, you know, you've done all of these things to depart from me, but please, you can still come back. Jesus demonstrated the mercy and forgiveness of God even to people who had committed serious errors, uh, much to the, the upsetting of some people around him, asking if he knew that he was associating with sinners. This wasn't the issue. It was he wanted to forgive. I think we can safely say, yes, God loves us. Which leads us to this thought. If God can help us, and he loves us, then why are there still people who are miserable, who are kept in suffering, sometimes for years? I think part of the answer is this advice that we see in James. Perhaps it is the case that God has sent you to help. Perhaps God wants you to understand compassion. Perhaps this is why he asks us to care for one another as a part of our pure religion. All right, let's look at the other aspect of this verse. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. We can equate that to love the Lord thy God, the first and great commandment. That's important. You can't do one or the other. You have to have both. Um, and showing love for your brethren cannot cause you to... You're not, you're not actually doing that if you are not keeping yourself unspotted from the world. For example, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was not showing love for his brethren when he made a golden calf at their request and allowed them to worship it. Certainly, it was performing a quote-unquote service for them, but because it was not keeping unspotted from the world, it was not actually showing love. Similarly, Solomon, the king, son of David, was not showing love for his wives when he joined them in bowing down to their gods. He was indulging worship of things that had no power, had, were not even based in reality. Saul, another king, was not showing love for his people when he officiated in a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel. He could have said, oh, well, you know, Samuel's taking too long. I, I, it was out of love for my people that I stepped in and made the sacrifice. But this is the key point. It's not love others or love God. It's both. You must do both. The idea is to show as much love as we can without 
becoming spotted by the world, incorporating their philosophies, embracing their customs, or giving equal allowance to false gods. This is the type of faith showed by Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who did not want to disrespect Nebuchadnezzar, but they were far more worried about disrespecting God. Uh, and whether that was consuming foods that were against the law of Moses, whether it was uh, not bowing down to the image on the plain of Dura set up by Nebuchadnezzar, they were much more concerned with doing what was right. The kindness extended by Jesus himself to those people who came to him after he had fed the 5,000, who were only hoping for a free meal, um, the kind of kindness he extended to them was telling them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, uh, which was very off-putting. Essentially, he was inviting them to try to understand a difficult thing so that they could receive spiritual nourishment. He was doing them a kindness in and. Uh, they did not recognize it as such. This is the kindness that even applies today. It's extended by modern prophets and apostles when they plead with us to, for example, keep standards of chastity so that we can partake in the blessings of Christ's gospel in spite of worldly pressures to amend the laws of God. You cannot indulge in loving other people, uh, and simultaneously dismiss loving God without failing entirely. All right. Faith without works is dead. A famous passage in James chapter 2. Um, I'd like to read a little of the context around it. I think it's really profound, excellently written. Uh, here's verses 14 through 19. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Or if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. All right. The question I would like to raise in uh, examining this passage is this. How much faith is necessary to be saved? Is it enough to confess Jesus with our mouths if we do nothing else? Well, if that were true, then Jesus would not have taught this in his Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It is not enough to say, Lord, Lord, to recognize Jesus as the Savior, although it's obviously a vital step. 
Is it enough to keep the commandments? Well, in theory, yes, but if that's the only way, then we're all in trouble because none of us keep all of the commandments. So what do we do? Well, this is the idea. When we fail to keep the commandments, if we are penitent and come to Christ, we receive new commandments. Some of these commandments may include things like confession, making restitution, sinning no more. Jesus was quite fond of this when, uh, when he extended forgiveness to people during his mortal ministry. Uh, but also that we more strictly keep the existing commandments. These new commandments are really important. They, uh, they become a new standard for qualifying for forgiveness and exaltation and are only possible because of Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible that a person may fail to keep the new commandments and have to kind of start over, go again in penitence to Jesus Christ and receive yet new commandments for how to become better. A person who does not do as Jesus says, or pretends that these new commandments don't exist in the name of being saved by faith, well, that's, that's a mistake. That's like telling someone, I love you, and then completely ignoring them. We exercise faith in Jesus by doing what he says. Joseph Smith taught this. A religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has the power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. So surely we can say that it is the faith that allows us to be saved. Uh, as Jesus himself taught, thy faith hath made thee whole uh, in, in many of the miracles that he performed. I think that's val uh, there's validity for that with respect to salvation as well. However, you have to have enough faith to do what he says, even if the doing it is not what saves. If Jesus, either directly or indirectly, through his prophets and apostles, asks you to do something and you fail to do it, can you really say, oh yeah, I definitely have faith in Jesus? It's a hard thing to justify. All right, let's talk about the verse that changed the world. There were efforts by some Protestants, even including Martin Luther, a great Protestant reformer of the Catholic Church, um, to remove books like Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation from the canon of the Bible. Even today, these books tend to be placed toward the end of the New Testament instead of in chronological order, and some have suggested that at least part of the reason for that is they are less important, priority given to the Gospels uh, because they are direct testimonies of Jesus Christ, the Acts, which continues the chronology of the Apostles, and then the favorite uh, uh, um, saved by faith type epistles 
like Romans and Corinthians. Um, some believe that the reason for wanting to remove Hebrews and especially James uh, was the idea of the doctrine of sola fide, which we've talked about a little bit before. It means through faith alone. This is a Protestant doctrine, and uh, the idea is not through works do we receive salvation, only through faith alone. And because James is already taking time to talk about faith without works being dead, directly contradicts a lot of what Luther and others were trying to teach. So it's not surprising that they would not really appreciate that uh, book of scripture as much as others. Although some books that uh, they looked at have been labeled apocrypha and tend to be neglected, James was saved in the canon. There were enough other people who valued what was done that it was saved. And this would prove to be really important, because centuries later, there was a boy searching for answers, and he would come across this miraculously preserved book of scripture and find a verse that would change the world. It's in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. As the disciples of Christ on the road to Emmaus felt their hearts burn within them as scriptural truths were taught, so was the heart of this young Joseph Smith moved. He recorded, Never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act, I did not know. And unless I could get more wisdom than I then had, I would never know. The diligence of early Christians who sacrificed their lives to preserve their faith, the work of monks who studiously copied and revered the word of God that they had received, the courage of translators who risked and on occasion gave their lives so that even the boy that drives the plow might know the scriptures, the culture that established the Bible and religious thought in colonial America. All of these elements came together, at least in part, for that moment in upstate New York when Joseph came across that verse. He retired to a grove of trees near his farm, driven by the words of the brother of Jesus himself, and he prayed asking for wisdom from God. In answer to Joseph's prayer, God, our very heavenly Father, appeared with his Son, Jesus Christ. Just as God had done in ancient times, a prophet was again on earth, 
the stone cut out of the mountain without hands of man, as prophesied by Daniel in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, in that moment was carved. Nearly 200 years later, millions have benefited from that same verse that inspired Joseph Smith, lacking wisdom, asking God, and receiving truth. It truly has changed the world. The act of prayer is one of the purest works through which faith can be expressed. When coupled with a sincere heart and real intent to obey, the powers of heaven can be poured out, bestowing forgiveness, healing, power, and miracles. The direct connection with God exemplified in pure religion, can lead all men everywhere to fulfill their ultimate purpose. We appreciate all the support for the Ward Preacher podcast. We encourage you to study um, the remainder of James. There is a lot that is worthwhile in this book. Next week, we will look at First and Second Peter and discuss a little about handling persecution. And of course, as always, fight on.